0: of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important, yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis.
1: Hi, podcast listeners. My name is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps a fundraiser perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task developing deep, meaningful relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong givers. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insights into the hearts, minds, and connections of their donors. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Podcast listeners, the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow is finally back on the schedule. We have several dates confirmed. Since 2014, our team has been providing high-quality one-day roadshows in partnership with nonprofit leaders who want to showcase their space and provide thought-provoking and highly interactive fundraising training in their nonprofit community. Our roadshows have been described by our guests as hands-down the best professional development experience that they have ever been a part of. This experience has been described as challenging assumptions with conversation-inspiring content and new ways of thinking. If you would like to register for one of the upcoming stops on the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, just visit the link in the show notes. Hi, Greg. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. Um, I'm sort of embarrassed to admit that you and I have been friends and colleagues for quite some time. You've, uh, you've had me uh, speak at, a, at an event. Uh, we're uh, p- fellow pennsylvanians and uh and unfortunately I have neglected to have you here on the podcast so i'm delighted to uh I- I'm-, I'm delighted to have you here with me today um let's just start with letting you introduce yourself to our listeners
2: sure well thank you very much it's great to be here today it's uh it's awesome to finally do that i know we've been chatting about it for uh Probably longer than either of us would ever like to admit, and uh, so it's great to be here. Uh, my name's uh, Greg Wilson, as, as you just mentioned. I'm currently the Director of Client Success at Plan Giving Marketing, but I've uh, spent the last almost 25 years as a frontline fundraiser and just stepped away this January. Uh, so it's um, kind of fun to change my role a little bit and to, uh, once again, try to focus on plan giving as, as much as possible.
1: Okay, Greg, so I haven't, I don't think I've had a guest where we've ever sort of kicked the conversation off this way, but it, it since you and I are both in Pennsylvania and there's lots of things, um, there's lots of ways you could sort of describe what it's like to be in Pennsylvania. Of course, there's, you know, there's the food and um, there's sort of having these two big bookend, you know, cities with this big central, central Pennsylvania sort of reality and what all that means. Um Craig, you're from Pennsylvania. What does it mean to raise money in Pennsylvania?
0: Uh
2: I don't I, I would say my quick and easy answer is at some level it's probably the same as raising uh Everywhere money any, any anywhere else. Um yeah. I've, I've done a fair amount of national travel for uh with two organizations and securing gifts from uh alumni at spread across the the u.s and i i would say that part's relatively the same no matter where you go but um i i would say on on the other side that we're a um a uh ask a lot of questions kind of uh state there's there's typically a lot of um uh rigor and uh and a lot of answers you need to provide ahead of time before somebody's really ready to fully commit um that might be the only asterisk that i'd put on there um for as uh, welcoming as we, we might sometimes be portrayed. Um, Pennsylvania uh, is, is, has, has a lot of questions a lot of times. Well, or maybe and, it's and, just where I've worked.
1: Well, and and you're raising money. You've, uh, you've raised money in what we know here in Pennsylvania is what's called the Lehigh Valley, which is sort of this Valley that sits between, between the, you know, what, what most people know to be Philadelphia and the, say the Poconos Um what does fundraising look like up there in your part of the state, say the last couple of years um during the pandemic uh, i I would say that
2: um the the Lehigh Valley has been incredibly generous throughout the entire pandemic um, yeah but um and i'd I'd say it, it has mirrored what I've read about. Uh, what's in the, the rest of the country is that as much as people have been generous, they've also been very specific that you know they wanted okay. to go to support um you know frontline healthcare workers. They wanted to, you know, just cover this particular area. Um you know there there was still some um sort of general support that was out there. I know our uh the United Way of Greater Lehigh Valley is very strong and has been doing quite well throughout all of this. But um, from what I saw individually, it was, it was uh, a lot of uh, directed type giving or people saying like, okay, I want this to go here to support that.
1: Yeah. My children were uh, two of my four children were born at St. Luke's. Uh, okay. So we, yeah uh, you know, we have, uh, we have a great deal of appreciation some, for the Lehigh Valley. Back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did not know so, that. Yeah. So we we were up in, uh, Greg, I, you might, I'm sure I've shared this with you at some point or another, but uh, we were up in the Poconos working on a building campaign, uh, for a camp ministry. Uh, and that's, um, let's see, Jack and, and Christina are, uh, 18, they're 16 and 18 this year. And, uh, and so they sort of, they sort of bookend that time that we spent, uh, up there in the, in the Lehigh Valley and the, um, in the Poconos. So we sort of, um you certainly certainly know the area greg we uh we ask our guests to come on here with a big idea or bold opinion we don't necessarily know what that big idea or bold opinion is going to be um and uh we've been doing this for 300 plus episodes and it's uh wow. it's worked out pretty well so what do you got for us today sure uh my
2: mine's one that i've talked about a lot so uh anybody that's had the um whether pleasure or our, uh or or displeasure of spending some time with me at <laughs> breakfast or lunch uh or or listen to any of my presentations, I, I just think that in twenty years or or sometime less than that, there's actually going to be a huge gulf between nonprofits that actually like have strong financial resources and those that don't. Um and I yeah. really think that that have or have not situation is going to come down to whether or not an organization has a strong plan giving program. Uh, I just see there's too many things out there, too many different like indicators that are falling into place that uh, makes me pretty nervous for a lot of organizations that don't don't have any type of plan giving program, whether it's as simple as a bequest type program or whether they have anything more complicated that you'll see at like a lot of the IVs, but just. Any type of plan giving program needs to be in place, and it's that you know they're starting to run out of like oh I'll get to that tomorrow's kind of deal before there just won't be anything left kind of deal so you know in in my opinion, a lot of this has some some real basis on um generational trends you know you yeah. have this huge wave that everybody talks about, and it's that generational uh, wealth transfer that's going to happen with the the boomers which I think that that's true, but I think it's also a huge mindset change between boomers and millennials and then just even sheer numbers that there's like 20 million more boomers than there are millennials. So you're decreasing your 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 uh, total ability to to secure any type of deferred gift. Um by, uh, you're decreasing that number by about 20 million, not to mention like just some of the sort of big picture, um, demographic differences between, um, baby boomers and the millennials, um, which I can like sort of go on to ad nauseum yeah. for, for quite so, some time.
1: <laughs> so we, I, I, I totally, I totally get where you're going, but, um, I'm interested to, to sort of hear you sort of break that down. Cause I, um, Are we talking about organizations that do or do not have the sort of the wherewithal, the knowledge, the sort of the technical expertise? Are we talking about organizations that don't have the donor, sort of the access to the to that particular donor? Or or are we talking about something else? Or my guess is we're talking about all those things.
2: Yeah. Talk, talking a little bit about all those things. And really, it will come down to I think every nonprofit organization has the ability to have a plan giving program and yeah. has the donors for a plan giving program. It's just whether or not that nonprofit ever sort of puts that little sign out in the window and says, hey, we accept gifts like this. Um and then celebrates donors and reassures them that, oh, okay, people like me can make gifts like this. You know, I, I think that's really the biggest point. I don't think most nonprofits in the world, or at least in, in the U.S., don't necessarily need a complicated plan giving program. It's really just focused on any type of bequest type gifts, beneficiary designations. Um, and and really, that's not anything that somebody needs some technical knowledge for. Um you know, I, I was kind of laughing as I was thinking about our, our conversation today. And, you know, to to toss the softball back to you, like I really look at plan giving as the ultimate third lane of fundraising. Like it's all just about you need to still be able to develop relationships with people. And if you don't develop relationships with people, they're not going to trust you enough to ever consider leaving your organization in their will. And if you don't also let them know that, hey, we accept gifts like this they're not going to ever think about including, you know, your organization in their will kind of deal. Um, and it just, I think in my opinion, and from what I've seen in the work that I do, like it starts as early as that, like, that's all you need to do. It doesn't need to be anything technical. You don't need, and I'm a bad example about this. You don't need more letters after your name than you have in your name. Like it's just all about, you know, sort of the basics of, of of focusing on that third lane in fundraising and, and really getting to know your donors and matching them up with things and, and building that relationship.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that you sort of pick up on those three lanes because we talk, obviously, we talk about the three lanes here periodically here on the podcast. And I, I kind of wonder if, if you're... Um, I, I kind of wonder if if the challenge that you're sort of zeroing in on can be in some ways diagnosed based on using sort of the three lanes as a way to sort of make sense of it. We seem to, when I think across the entirety of my fundraising career, you know, we seem to have everything that you could possibly do as it relates to plan giving, everything you could possibly do that you could do in lane one seems to be being done. What I don't see organizations doing that contributes to a successful, what we'll call a successful plan giving effort in lane three is they're not investing in that relationship that let, you know, they're not putting that relationship ahead of that gift in lane two. Um, And, and consequently, you've just got a bunch of fundraisers who are, they're just, they're just educating their donors about the opportunity, but they're not developing. Um, they're not developing the comfort. I, I, I tend to think that a lot of our challenges, Greg, and tell me if I'm wrong. I tend to think a lot of our challenges in this space aren't about the availability of donors, or that the donors have the resources, or that the donors are even willing to do it. So we don't have fundraisers who are ha- who will start those conversations. Yeah, I, I I would agree with that. That it all comes down to
2: some pretty basic, um, indicators that somebody, you know, that a donor is willing to raise their hand and say, Hey, you know, I'm interested in this. And then it's just having a frontline fundraiser that's open and willing to start that conversation. And, and I would say that on the plan giving side of things, that conversation tends to be at a much slower, I don't want to say more methodical, but, a you know, just a much slower sort of step-by-step, Type of conversation. It's not a you know. I used to joke earlier in in my career that you know it, it's a very different set of gears when you go in, and especially if you're a major gift type fundraiser, and you know that you have 50 minutes to have lunch and to have a conversation and to secure a gift from a high net worth individual versus a a conversation with a planned giving donor that's going to take sometimes, you know, three hours, you know, you, I don't want to scare anybody away and say, Oh my gosh, every, every potential donor meeting that I have with a plan giving prospects going to three hours, but some of them do run that long, but it's an entirely different cadence in how that conversation goes versus what a lot of us are used to on the major gift side, which is a, a lot of like, Oh, okay. Getting to know that donor, listening to what kind of impact they're looking to make. And then, I don't want to say quickly, but rather rapidly, at least going through here's a bunch of different ideas that may or may not resonate with you to get them inspired and motivated and, and open and willing to make that kind of gift. Whereas, you know, uh, my mentor always taught me that on the plan giving side, you, you have to let that gift come to you. Like that's, that's much more about like the sort of slower fishing style of like, you know, reeling the fish in a little bit. And then just a little bit like the, the donor has to realize that from all levels that a, the organization can be trusted and will be around for a while. And that the, whatever you as the representative of that organization and that donor decide throughout the course of meetings that that's going to be respected and like followed after they're gone too. Because as I joke you know and as much as people will like make gifts that try to control beyond the grave you know when somebody makes a planned gift a deferred type gift they're not around anymore to like correct you on no that's not exactly what i wanted so like there's going to be that extra like couple of steps as the donor gets comfortable with saying okay i'm going to leave you with the largest gift i've ever left you and i won't be around to see if you spend that money right kind of deal like so it is there's there's a lot of that relationship building a lot of that trust building
1: i i have spent a lot of time lately i have spent a lot of time lately really sort of making sense of the difference between sort of a a complicated worldview and a uh, margaret heffernan one of my favorite authors talks about uh sort of a 20th century complicated worldview similar to like an engine or an assembly line or something versus a 21st century complex worldview which sort of understands things in a, in sort of a living sort of way, like a complex adaptive system. And one of the things that it occurs to me, the degree to which an organization will invest in a plan giving effort, like you're describing with the benefit, say coming a decade or two later, like you're describing is the de- the degree to which they can be okay with the uncertainty of that. If you think about most of yes. like the way that contemporary fundraising sort of plays out, most of it plays out in sort of this how do we most how do we most efficiently and most predictably generate the resources that we need now which is really like the opposite of everything that you're talking about because it doesn't feel efficient it's not going to come now and it doesn't it's not predictable even even if it does come particularly efficiently you know you sit down at a lunch table and all of a sudden you're finding out about this planned gift um and and perhaps you never even have to meet with this person ever again but at the same time it's a planned gift, and it's only going to happen in a sort of an uncertain world. I mean, is that part of what we're talking about here? Does the organization have to develop those muscles?
2: Yeah, I, I I would definitely agree with that. That there has to be some some risk tolerance built into all of that. Now, now there are some some benefits that I'll come back to in a moment, but yeah, there there is. I mean, I've I've seen gifts that. We were told by the donor, oh, I'm really sorry. There won't be anything left. There won't be anything left. And then comes in a significant seven-figure gift after their, their passing. And then I've seen it on the opposite side where somebody's like, oh, my gosh, you're in my estate for this and it's going to be worth so much. And then by the time everything's all said and done, it's a, you know, maybe a low five-figure gift kind of deal or even a four-figure gift. So there there is a fair amount of uncertainty. Um, but I would say that there's... There's some benefits to that, and um, you know, I'll I'll give all all credit to Dr. Russell James, who's been doing a lot of the research on this. But there's there's always been a strong correlation between people's annual giving and their willingness to support an organization through their through their estate type plans. You know, again, whether it's through their will or whether it's an IRA, like that data has been around since. Probably the mid '90s. Now I think was the first time I read a book on on something like that, or early 2000s. Yeah. But what Dr. James has been able to find is that there's actually a significant increase in annual giving once somebody has indicated that they're, they've included your organization in their estate plans. So it actually can help your current, you know, fundraising operations today it can strengthen your annual fund if you're willing to. Again, put the sign out there and say, hey, we're open for for plan giving business. We're open to uh, accepting these kinds of gifts. And I believe that he said that the an, an individual's annual giving can increase by as much as 30 percent once they've indicated um, that they've included your organization in their estate plan. So so there is some sort of baked in positivity to to that uncertainty at the end. Um and I, I just also think too, on the plan giving side, you've, if you're not out there fishing, you're never going to collect those sort of large scale gifts. And it's, it's also a, a flywheel effect too. Like I'm a huge Jim Collins fans and fan and like the whole theory yeah. of a flywheel and, and plan giving is a lot of that, that it can literally build up for an organization and become a, a baseline of fundraising. If you spend all of that time in, in sort of preparing it and, and for building that foundation, it'll, it'll pay you back on the, you know, in the end, as far as like if you can just get that both marketing and messaging out of like, Hey, we're open for um, again, for business and in accepting gifts like this, that um, helping your donors to identify that, Oh, like people like me do make gifts like this in support of this organization that then as those two factors sort of like just, keep building on one another and building on one another, then you start to pull in like, as I guess it creates more of a gravitational pull where people are then a lot more open to saying, Oh, okay, this isn't an oddball thing because, you know, I'll, I'll take another step back. Like when you go to the estate attorney and worry about like, Oh, how are my assets going to be divvied up when I, when I die, that estate attorney, 99% times out of a hundred isn't going to say, oh, well, have you considered your church? Have you considered the nonprofit you like? They usually just ask you, okay, how many children do you have? Uh, Do you have nieces and nephews? Like what's the division out through your family? And then there's some consideration about um, tax avoidance. And for most individuals, um, the way that they've reset the estate uh, levels, like you don't have to specifically worry about, Oh, my overall estate isn't worth enough to be taxed. So that doesn't come up in a conversation of like, Oh, Hey, have you ever considered leaving your college in your will or the, um, you know, animal shelter down the road in your will, like that just hasn't come up. So you have to get up and over that speed bump first. And then, um, help people to realize oh okay like this isn't uncommon for me to do something like that and then that's that flywheel effect the more you can do that the more you can get it out there the more to paint that picture the more people start thinking oh okay i i can do this and people like me do make gifts like this and it starts focusing then even more which gets more exciting on impact rather than just on tax avoidance which a lot of times is the first reason that somebody raises their hand and is like oh i might be interested in making a deferred gift because You know, this whatever appreciated asset is going to like cost my heirs a whole lot of money if I pass it down to them.
1: Um, So it's just, it, it, Greg is part of. So part of my part of my evolving theory on how we can get fundraising right, and let's say we're we're reaching out into the future, like you're suggesting, we're all going to some of us are going to be in trouble, and some of us are going to be doing perfectly fine in a couple of decades. And, and if we line it up with these three lanes that I'm re- consistently talking about, is part of the predicament that I think we get into in fundraising is, is that lane one fundraising is very much based on low expectations of the relationship, which means neither side of the exchange has high expectations of what the other one on the other side of the exchange is going to be doing and as we move inward towards the second and the third lane the expectations that both those both sides of the relationship have for the other one start to increase and what i have started to wonder when i think about what the future of lane one even is and i'm kind of interested in how you would sort of Does the, does the planned giving conversation hinge on, this is what I'm asking. Does the planned giving conversation hinge on the idea that, that those on both sides of the exchange, both sides of the relationship have to sort of have come to a place where they have high expectations of the other? Yeah, I, I, I not would. of the not of the gift necessarily. Yeah, I'm not yeah. talking about the amount of the gift. I'm talking about kind of like the relationship that sort of exists between you and I. Can, 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 do, do we get to the place where we say, "Okay, I've got high expectations of Greg. Jason has high expectations of me." Back and forth, does that become the place that makes for really good planned gift conversations? Yeah, I. It, it's kind of interesting. I've never thought about it
2: that way but that would even make sense back to the um you know you you can have a a very um strong lane one i'll call it direct mail kind of yeah um fundraising program that can actually jump right to a lane yes. three plan giving program if that that trust and those expectations are both there. developed and and you know, mutually agreeable, I guess, you know, so the relationship has still been developed. It's not a transactional direct mail program. It's I guess a relationship, which might even skip it up into a lane to it at that point. But, but I, I would agree with that, that it's huge. It, It is. It's totally based on, you know, if I, even from that initial, again, direct mail, whether it's, you know, USPS, the way that I think of direct mail or like direct mail through email or social media, it is. There is that expectation like, oh, if I make this gift, I'm going to see some type of results back from making that gift. And then same thing, the expectation from the nonprofit side is going to be, hey, you know, we we made this difference that you asked us to make through your gift. And now we're going to bring it back to you and say, hey, well, will you support the next you know, difference making that we're working on? So see, I,
1: yeah, I, I would see. really agree with that. That's pretty cool. So, so okay. Let's just let's just sort of sit on that for a minute. I don't think so. I I, yes, I have watched this. You and I have very similar sort of career story. We've both been in this space about the same length of time, and we're both very familiar with the way that we educate our donors. Oftentimes, with lane one activity about the planned giving opportunities, we know how that works. Well, what I don't think that we've done is, is I don't think, and this is on the, I think the onus of, of, of where we're going here is on the fundraiser. I don't think that the fundraiser has been convinced to have high expectations of those relationships that are receiving those appeals, for example. So if you're sending those, yeah. you, let's say you're sending that, that, you know, leave us in your will sort of uh, thing, putting in their mailbox. You have to have a fundraiser who's sending that out, who says, the people that get that, I have high expectations of. So therefore, when they pick up the phone and say, Mrs. Smith, can we get together? You know, can we meet at the local diner and talk about what you got in, your, got in the mailbox last week? Um, I don't think our expectations are high enough of those people the fundraiser i don't think the fundraiser has high expectation has high enough expectations of the donor does that make yeah. sense it, it it it
2: does and i i'll i guess i'll push back on that part a little bit i think the and and only because i've been there and then i've changed mm-hmm. my mind i think mm-hmm. the fundraiser tends to not have enough patience not not high enough expectations but enough patience because on the deferred side of things you're totally in the you know you're you're in the relationship based on the donor's timeline not on like the organization's timeline or even on like the critical need that that nonprofit is trying to solve you're you're totally and utterly on the individual's time frame and you know there's there's a lot of that that i've seen in my um career and and one of my funniest ones is a a woman that called and left me a message and we, we tracked it back and the best that we could figure out was like a year and a half after I had called her as just a, like, Oh, here's a list of, um, potential planned giving donors. Let me reach out to them and just introduce myself and, you know, call left a message and, you know, and she called me back in a year and a half and was like, Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't get right back to you, you know, but now I'm ready to have this conversation. And then her gifts really moved pretty quickly along from that point, but it all boiled down to the fact that like, I was leaving that message. I had expectations of her, but it wasn't that right slice of time for her yet. Like other things had to be in place before she was willing to say, Oh, okay. Now I'm willing to talk to you about my estate plans or how to set up a life income gift kind of deal. You know? And I think, so I I think it's that point in time. And I, I think it's also keeps coming back to what we've, sort of started some of this conversation with is is that trust as well because like that has to be you know that the the donor has to fully trust not just the organization but also has to trust the um that the fundraiser is that representative of the organization and they are um who they say they are, kind of deal. I, I tell this story often because it's something that we recommend at, at Plan Giving Marketing is that the Plan Giving officer or whoever is responsible for for that type of fundraising at an organization, whether it's the executive director, a director of development, that you have to put your photo on the marketing material that you're sending out. You know, it doesn't have to be big. Yeah. You don't have to worry about being embarrassed by it, but you have to build that trust with the donor so that they're willing to meet with you because again like this is somebody talking about here's my gift that's well after i'm gone kind of deal let me make sure who i'm meeting with is really who i'm supposed to be meeting with and i always tell the stories and it's it's somewhat prototypical of the um you know very senior aged um woman that comes out and would meet with me at like a you know We'll, we'll make some regional references here at a, at a New Jersey diner because there's six kajillion diners in, in New Jersey <laughs> and see them walking into there and like looking down at the marketing piece that I see that they brought with them. And then like looking up and scanning the the waiting area and then looking down at the photo again, and then scanning the the waiting area. And I saw that pretty frequently throughout my, my time in, in roles like that, that they wanted that comfort level. They wanted that trust to say, okay, I, I, trust the organization enough to say yes to this meeting, but now I want to see, and, and maybe it's more of that expectation. Now I want the expectation of who I'm going to meet with really is this real representative of this organization that I
1: trust kind of deal. Um, I think and that and- donor, I think that, so I remember working with a central, since we're in Pennsylvania, I'm going to pick on one of my, and I won't name them, but I was working with a central Pennsylvania client once and the biggest problem they had—they're trying to institute. It wasn't a planned giving program, Greg, but it was—it was just a, what you would understand. It was a what a, it was a lane to high donor and higher donor engagement sort of program to start having meaningful conversations with their donors. And I—I I feel like sort of the. I feel like where uh, you know, a lot of the organizations that are perhaps listening to this conversation are going to get stuck is they're going to run into a donor who wh- this, and this is what we consistently kept hearing. It's that donor who says, why are you calling me now? Right? So they've, they've gotten the, they've gotten all the education that they need that they could possibly ever. And they perhaps have gotten that education for years, if not decades. Um, They're, potential, their capability, their willingness even is there. Um, And they might even be doing it with other organizations. They might even be, you know, making bequests with other organizations. But what we kept running into, and I've, this, again, I'm referring to a particular client that I worked with for a while here in central Pennsylvania. Why are you calling me now? That was the, that was a problem.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would say that that's, (laughs) which is is one of those interesting sort of um, I'll, I'll call it catch 22s, I guess with yeah. mind giving is that a lot of times you have to um, show the impact of that theoretical gift before you can have that, that conversation that way, you know, there's a, there's a, a and and I guess, again, it comes back to that expectation. Like there's that expectation of the, organization showing the donor what could possibly happen if they were to ever make a gift like that or the expectation of let me see what other people are doing in this space that way and you know the nice part about it is, is an organization doesn't have to do anything differently on the stewardship side it's not like they have to create 17 new plan giving stewardship events um i've done a lot of just piggy- piggybacking plan giving stewardship on other events that were already occurring so that the plan giving donors could see what was going on at the organization. They just felt like they were a part of it. Um, And I think if you're able to show some of that impact and, and I always joke, you know, you also need to have sort of that Rolodex of stories in your back pocket that you can talk about, you know, can help with the donors that are like, Oh, well, why are you calling me now? And I mean, one the good news is there's so much churn in the nonprofit world still on frontline fundraisers that it, you can play the new card sometimes throughout your entire time at, at an organization <laughs> of like, Oh, well I'm calling you now. Cause I'm new, you know, I, I've been new for like two or three years sometimes at, at places just because <laughs> it you know, takes a while to get through, you know, and even going back to um, yeah, the expectations, I, I actually jotted that down because I have, it's it's really started to like set my stern yeah my, my brain going here yeah because it's and and i would say too like trying to peel back some of the um, myths about playing giving that you have to be this like super technical expert and know everything and and again i'll pick on myself i've been through um a lot of those classes i've gone through that and yeah there's there's not an expectation from donors that you as a gift officer is going to know the answer every time they toss something out to you. I think that's a really big thing that trips up most fundraisers of like ever broaching the plan, giving, you know, bubble kind of deal. Like they'll come up close to it, but they won't ever stick their finger through that like big soap bubble. Cause they're like, Oh, this donor is going to ask me something and I won't know the answer. And I, I don't think that's the expectation of the donor. I think the donor just has an expectation that we as a, As as somebody who's a part of that relationship is going to take it seriously to go find that answer, you know, that, and that we can, can, and will report back to that donor of like, okay, this is what I, you know, I talked to this attorney or I talked to a financial advisor, or, you know, in some cases, here's the IRS publication that says what you can and can't do. I don't, I don't think donors have the expectation that we're going to, you know, just, rattle off like oh well what's the you know what kind of you know life income gift how will it get structured if i do a shark fin crud or something like that like no like they're not asking like they're usually more of like oh well how is this going to impact the organization and how might this impact my kids or my nieces and nephews and like they're not grilling you on like oh well what's the irs discount rate for this month like there's there's an expectation that you can find that answer, but not an expectation that you're going to like, just rattle that off like crazy kind of deal. You know, it's, I think it's, that's again, it,
1: it, it's, it's interesting, Greg, to see you sort of uh, th- that, that, that the notion of high expectations is sort of a, is a helpful, a helpful thought, because I think as I'm thinking about sort of my evolving critique on what what and why contemporary practice has sort of let a lot of organizations down. I think it's because we start these relationships, like consumer relationships, that are oftentimes. Conditioned on low expectations. And so it's kind of like my relationship with Walmart or McDonald's. My expectations, their expectations of me are very, very low. And I think that's part of the problem that we're running into now. And I think if you think about the organizations that you're forecasting are going to have a going back to your initial uh, uh, suggestion that, you know, a decade or two out, we're going to have a lot of problems. It's the ones that can kind of let go of this culture of low expectations. Of both the fun, you know, both sides of the relationship, um, right. and ultimately, if you think about, I'm guessing this is what I guess we could sort of wrap up on this question, Greg. When you think about the programs that you've been a part of or that you've consulted with, the ones that ultimately sort of thrived, planned giving programs that thrive, am I right to say that they? were built on high expectations of those on both sides of the relationship. You're going to have high expectations of the fundraiser and you sure as hell are going to have high expectations of the donor or it's probably not going to work out.
2: Yeah, yeah, I I I would definitely agree with that that there's that and and it's and and the other part that I'll sort of add into that is it's mutually defined expectations. So it's not expectations on either side in a vacuum, and I think that's probably some of the part that i I've always liked best about plan giving is that it's a it's a conversation to define those expectations of like oh okay, you're yeah. interested in making an impact that's that large, okay now, your expectation is of me that I'm going to help you figure out how to structure this so it makes sense every way, like whether it's you know through the organization, through your other plans, but I would really agree with that, and then. You know, because it's really funny, too, as, as again, I keep thinking about this, then that has frequently set the stage for larger outright gifts because we've defined expectations and there's that trust level of like, okay, my expectation that I need to do this and then the organization is going to do that. And, you know, vice versa from the fundraising and organizational point of view back to that that donor that then the donor is in such a sort of comfortable trust trusting space that then they start to go oh well okay that worked out pretty well like i'm comfortable with this relationship we talk through it all we we determine some you know mutually agreeable sort of you know relationship here i'm i'm willing to to throw more into that relationship now like i would i've always talked about it as you know not quite as your lanes, but like as a sort of circle train track that you have the annual fund, the major gift and plan giving and yeah. a donor can start at any one of those three ta- train straight stations and just kind of like drive around those three frequently. But I would agree that it, the frequency that they're willing to go from station to station or the speed at which they do comes back to those expectations and that, that relationship that's been built because everybody has followed through on their expectations like again like i i think that's pretty neat and that helps explain some of the other like you know donor conversations that i still think about like oh okay well, why did that one work so well
1: the, the, you know go back to the relation so the, go back to the relationship that i have with walmart or mcdonald's because the relationships are so low because the re- expectations are so low we don't have to be explicit because, I mean, yeah. what's the what 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 disappoint what what possible disappointment could I really, you know, involve myself here is probably the logic that is working in in my favor and in McDonald's favor as I drive through that drive through. The worst thing that can happen is I can get a really bad cheeseburger or something. Um, yeah. And I think. I think fund and that's just what we get from the marketplace. That's what consumerism is. And I think that's what ultimately sort of lets us all down. Um, And, and it's interesting to hear use the language of sort of this. This sort of this explicitness. Yes, that's what plan giving requires. It requires that's even some of the language I use in my own coaching is you kind of you get the fundraiser and the donor at the lunch table And you, you put your cards on the table. You're acknowledging the fact of what's going on here, which is really what you're talking about. You know, whether we're having a plan giving conversation or not, Greg, we're going to, we lose our listeners at about 45 minutes in, and I don't want (laughs) to miss the opportunity for you to be able to uh, somebody's probably listening to this conversation. They're interested in reaching out to you. I know that you work with organizations and their plan giving efforts. Um, Tell us a little bit about how people find you. And then I always like to sort of couch that question with who do you want to hear from? Uh,
2: sure. Uh, I can be found on uh, LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find other than there's, I'm sure, a thousand Greg Wilsons. But if you put in Greg Wilson and then CAP, C-A-P afterwards, uh, you should be able to uh, track me down that way. You can email me at Greg just. G-R-E-G at pgmarketing.com. So again, pretty straightforward there. And we do a lot of um the heavy lifting for nonprofits. So especially um organizations that don't have a dedicated plan giving program but wanna start and wanna have a plan giving marketing program that looks like it totally came from them. So it sounds like them, looks like them. Um You know, that that's the kind of work that we do at at PG marketing and outsourced entirely from the organization so that the, um, you know, frontline fundraiser isn't also um, trying to write, you know, marketing copy or design a postcard like we take all of that work off of off of their plate, um, which is, uh, again, something that I always wanted while i was a frontline fundraiser which is how i ended up with my relationship with them but um yeah open to anybody looking to um grow their plane giving program and um trying to get it uh moving forward so that they can be set hopefully uh after this sort of like 20-year cliff that that we might fall off of which i leave that teaser out there that we can talk about in the future so
1: Greg, I, I count count you as a friend. I'm glad that we're colleagues. Um, I regret I regret that we haven't gotten you on here sooner, um, but it's been a great conversation and you're certainly always welcome back. Yeah, Thank you, Jason. This has been a huge amount of fun and uh, looking forward to, to doing this again sometime.
0: Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read in this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all-too-familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The War for Fundraising Talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers.